you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is fabulous to have you here for another episode of this podcast. If it's your first time listening to me, hello and welcome and make sure you subscribe if you like what you hear. And if you are a regular listener, thank you so much. Your support, your messages, your downloads are all appreciated. Now, I've got a couple of questions for you um, in relation to today's interview. Um, Do you think work has to be about survival? What about a philosophy that you've got to work hard to achieve? Well, my latest guest, Paul Farina, is wanting to debunk all of those myths. He believes that work doesn't have to be about survival. And it's actually not about how hard you work. It's how well you actually synchronize. He believes that to unleash brilliance, it's the combination of three essential pillars, humility, audacity, and tenacity that will give you the foundation to a rhythm effect that will absolutely amplify how you perform at work and in life. Paul is obsessed with helping high achievers progress their work without sacrificing their health, their relationships, and any future opportunities. Um, He's an educator. He's a former a professional uh, athlete, he's an author, he's a speaker, and he's got more than 20 years experience in business across the globe. His latest book, uh, The Rhythm Effect, The Leader's Guide to Team Performance, is getting great accolades, love this book, have read it multiple times, there's some great stuff in here. And his latest research in this book really delves into the value of being in sync with each other, our environments, systems, and our products. He now partners uh, with leaders, teams, and organizations to engage with the real game we're all playing, which is the return we gain on our efforts. A whole heap of experience, as I've said before, a former professional athlete, a health practitioner, a business owner, and a corporate leader really allows him to bring a multifaceted lens to the work that he does. Um, So settle in and enjoy this latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance with the incredibly inspiring Paul Farina. Welcome to today's podcast. Uh, I am super excited to introduce you to a very good friend of mine, a guy called Paul Farina. Um, Actually, COVID was a bit of a gift uh, for us. Our worlds have moved in similar circles for a while, but it was only during COVID as part of an initiative of a mutual friend of ours, a guy called Rowan Dredge, who essentially pulled together an ideas club, which was a format forcing us to actually get work done virtually together that I really got to know uh, a little bit more about Paul and most importantly about the incredible work that he is doing. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today, Paul. 
My pleasure, Janine. Great to be here talking with you, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We are going to have a ball, that's for sure. So let's let's just, just do some quick-fire questions. I find these are a nice way for our listeners to start to get a feel of who you are. So where are you from, Paul? Uh, so I am originally from the beautiful Adelaide Hills, uh, which if you grew up in the Adelaide Hills, it was one of those country sort of areas where when you're growing up, it feels really slow and boring. Uh, but uh, after you grow up and you move away and you go back, you realise just how lucky you were. So uh, the Adelaide Hills, I, I grew up there in a, uh, well, basically in a family from immigrant parents and um, who had their, their own business. My dad was in construction. And um, basically, uh, when I was growing up, uh, we were around that and I grew up on a building site, basically. Um, but other than that, I was just obsessed with sport. And uh, and so, yeah, running around, uh, anything to do with a ball or a bat or uh, particularly team sports, then that was sort of my thing. And uh, along with my older brother, there was two of us growing up. Uh, basically, that's all we did until uh, either there wasn't enough light or we, uh, <laughs> we, we uh, ran out of things to scrap about, basically. <laughs> Love it. You sound so much like my youngest son, Carter, like... All I can remember is forever is him having a ball in his hand. We'd be walking around the supermarket and he's chucking a ball one hand to the other. It's like, please don't get him into another sport. Have I even caught him watching dark on the telly and lawn bowls? It's what are you doing? Yeah. So what was your first job? What was your first job? Can you remember? Yeah, so other than stacking shelves at a local supermarket, which is almost a rite of passage for everybody in the area, I think, um, when I was... In my senior school, uh, I actually went through glandular fever. I had glandular fever that sort of really knocked me out for a good six to 12 months. And around about the same time, uh, my dad went through something which was at the time called the yuppie syndrome uh, and is now more known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And both of us actually found uh, remedy and got ourselves back on our feet through seeing a naturopath. And so actually off the back of that in our experience, and I had a friend of mine who had studied this sort of stuff, uh, coming out of school, not really knowing what I wanted to do, I went and studied uh, natural medicine and sports medicine. And after studying that for three or four years, I, I basically became a practitioner. I opened up my own practice. And that was my first experience in a lot of things, really, but of course, in uh, in small business, but also being a practitioner as a 20-year-old uh, really throws you in the deep end of um, being able to counsel and listen and empathise with people which are going through uh, health problems. So it was, it was very, very daunting, but it also actually on reflection now when I look at my career development and where I ended up going, uh, I built a lot of skills right up the top of, uh, of, of my career. So my first job was as a naturopath and, and sports medicine therapist. Wow, I never knew that. And what's really fascinating, which we'll come on to, is there's such a golden thread through your work when you look at you know, what your passion is now and the work that you're doing now. And um, you were a professional athlete, right, at one stage? Well, yeah, I was just playing. Uh, I was playing cricket and soccer and volleyball and basketball, like we said before, anything I could sort of get my hands on growing up. And I was just playing, you know, for 
really at country levels and 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 school level and these sorts of things. And as I was uh, going through those first few years of being a practitioner, simultaneously. I graduated from, I had an opportunity to go from country cricket to what they call grade cricket, which is fundamentally the level below uh, professional cricket or state cricket or county cricket over in, in the UK, which is the level below international. And uh, that basically gave me an opportunity. I kind of realised many things uh, in my own development, one being that I was actually good enough to rub shoulders with uh, this quality or calibre of player. And I just learned so much more about team sport. I learned a lot more about uh, respect and etiquette because when you're playing lower level sport, there is a lot of trash talking. And say, for instance, in Australia, for people that don't know, there's a really big sledging culture uh, around Australian cricket. And it was really interesting from an internal point of view that when I actually went and played, and by the way, when I was in my teens and early 20s, I was not the most pleasant person on a sporting field. I, I was, you know, very aggressive and very boisterous and, uh, you know, I, I gave as good as I got and probably a lot more. And playing at a higher level, what you realise very quickly is if you can't back up what you're saying, you just look like a jerk. You look like an idiot. And so it really taught me a lot about humility and, and actually being able to concentrate on, on the things that are going to get results rather than putting on a big front and, you know, trying to be something that you're not as well. But, uh, yeah, that gave me an opportunity to then uh, get a contract to go over and play as a professional in the UK. And uh, that was the start of the, the next phase of my journey where I went over for six months to play a season. I ended up playing a couple of seasons before deciding to then stay over in the UK and develop my career in different areas. So that ended up being a 10-year journey in the end from a six-month trip. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was... Sorry, that was the transition from being a practitioner to a professional cricketer, and then and then beyond. Cricketer, I have said, like, I'm from Yorkshire originally, and I know it should be in my blood to love cricket. You know, mm -hmm. I remember growing up as a kid, and we would have the tradition in the UK. In my family, was cricket would be on the TV, but the sound would be down and the radio would be on because the argument was that the radio commentary was way better than the TV. And, uh, you know, I grew up with the whole sort of Jeff Boycott <laughs> era. Um, but, oh, my God, I think after growing up with cricket constantly on the TV, I literally, it kills me right now. And for years, you will hate this, Paul, for years, my youngest sports-obsessed son was like, I want to play cricket, I want to play cricket, I want to play cricket. I was like, no, no because he's, he's a rugby player and everything else. Anyway, two seasons ago, I gave in. And, yes, he is now obsessed. Um, <laughs> and, yes, we now have hours on the side of a cricket field. I still don't understand it. I still can't get myself <laughs> excited about it, but I'm learning. Thank God for Big Bash, I say, because it's a very quick learning. I know it's a totally different game, but, yeah, I, I, it's a little bit more exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, you, you, you know what, what you're saying, you could, 
you could be my wife talking to me right now. You know, it sounds very, very familiar. Um, yeah, there's, there's two, I think there's two types of people out there, isn't there? There's people that love cricket and people that don't love it. And that's, that's, that's where it starts and that's where it, uh, where it ends. Absolutely. So any of our people listening, make sure you message me. Leave a message. I'm a cricket lover. Oh, nah, I'm with you, Janine. So, so thinking, about, um, thinking about your childhood um, or how you grew up and those experiences, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, as a, a child you had glandular fever and the incredible fatigue that kicked in with that, yeah. uh, yet the yuppie syndrome, I remember it being called that. Um, how do you think that childhood and your community has shaped uh, who you are now, Paul? Yeah, I think uh, definitely I grew up in a household that valued hard work uh, almost in front of anything else if you're if you're not working hard working harder than the people uh, next to you then uh, maybe your, your your status is lower and so I thought that was really interesting that I, I basically come from a long line of workaholics basically and I still grapple with that myself and that was an interesting experience for me because I actually saw what that could do to someone who of course we all, a lot of us grow up and our dad is uh, is Superman, and of course, then to visually see him uh, not be able to get out get out of bed at all for six or nine months that was quite difficult to watch, and it really resonated with me. In fact, I I never really let that go, and even from that early age, even though I didn't know it, I started to think about what is the alternative, and actually, if I look and reflect on then even as a cricketer, then my my journey into the corporate world uh, and then as even as a senior manager and even into what I do now working for myself and um, as an author, a coach, a trainer, these sorts of things, yeah, it's a, it's a really easy temptation to fall into, which is to just simply throw work at the problem. Work harder, that is a tangible, almost easy thing to do and it's that temptation which... I can tell you on a daily basis I still grapple with. Mm. I reckon there'll be many people listening to this that are probably nodding their heads and going, absolutely, that's that's me, I'm a workaholic. And I think even just listening to you and thinking back to to my childhood, which was, you know, my dad was a was a farmer. We were from a very working class family. Mm-hmm. Uh Grew up very much with this belief system, work hard. I mean, my dad said to me, where there's muck, there's brass love. It was literally work hard and hopefully the results will come. But how it almost becomes part of your makeup, this hard work, and even those two words together sort of jolt, don't they? Why should it be hard and why should it be hard work? How, um, you know, looking back, um, how has that served you well? And I'm also interested in the realisation of this isn't serving me well. I'm curious to see where you got to on that. Yeah, so there's a there's a bit of a duality, actually. So I think the first thing about the hard work um, ethos is that there is a reality that if you don't work hard at something, then you're very limited to start off with. So... For me, how I grappled with that was that if I wasn't working hard, my identity then got wrapped up in being lazy. And it took me mm-hmm. quite a long time to understand that actually being smart does not equate to being lazy. Um, mm-hmm. how, how the, the, the other the, the other side of the coin 
is that what it did teach me, what it did give me is more discipline and strong will than I've realised that I actually had. So if I look at the next 15 years uh, after moving out of home, going over to the UK, getting my independence, you know, working through that corporate ladder, and as you would know, doing that without a network around you. So when I went to the UK, I didn't know anybody. I landed in Cambridge and then after living there for two years and playing cricket, I then moved down to various parts of London and I did all of that without knowing anybody and so that was super difficult and of course if I didn't have the discipline if I didn't have the the, the working ethos and, and almost the strong will that goes with that to be able to continually day-to-day push forward then it wouldn't have been too long before I'm you know booking a ticket back to little old Adelaide and sort of starting again so it, it really served me well to, in, in that discipline way uh, and, and also in, in really having that, that will to push through and persevere with, uh, with, with whatever challenge or problem was in front of me. There, there was also another side to this as well, was really going back to your question before about my growing up and, and the influence, was that I grew up in an Italian family. And what, what do we relate with an Italian family? Food. It was always food, always hosting. There was always people coming through the door or there was always another place being set for whoever came in. So I was really heavily influenced as well by this inclusion and hosting and making sure people are fed and looked after and these sorts of things. It was really driven by my mum. And so actually to bring that all together, the real influence on me here was on one pillar was discipline and on the other pillar was uh, was inclusion and hosting as well. And in some weird way, that really formulated a huge influence on how I saw the world and how I acted and what I valued really going forward. Wow. And how did it, when you think about the moment, when was the moment where you realised that actually some of this approach wasn't serving you? Yeah, okay. So I think that um, when I was uh, starting to make my way in a higher level management job, so going from junior to say to middle manager and really starting to make a name for myself and get some runs on the board, uh, that's when I started to find myself hitting my limit and my ceiling through working that way. So there was a cycle that started to begin. Uh, I was maybe living a lifestyle that wasn't as healthy. Sleep was getting affected, uh, blowing off steam on the weekends, starting to put on weight, these sorts of things. I started to find that my results were were levelling out. Uh, I was defaulting to ducking and diving and trying to put on that professional face and mask that we tend to put on in those circumstances when we're faced with these challenges that we don't have the answers to we feel like we need to have the answers we feel like we need to and this is my experience was that I was really feeling like I needed to put on that that face and that mask and almost be the cleverest person in the room and uh, the reason why was because I didn't have anything else other than uh, try harder and and, and really work longer uh, in my toolkit. And when that wasn't doing the trick, 
things started to break and it would start to show up in the way I was talking, in the way that I presented myself and these sorts of things. And actually, I felt myself starting to get quite sick. And that was a good six to to even 18 month period there where I was operating like that. And at some point, actually, it didn't even come to the point of, oh, gee whiz, you better have a good look at yourself. I actually needed to go see the doctor. And then I had a wake up call that, hang on, you started to fall into that temptation and that trap again. And there was a distinct moment where I was actually back in Australia by this point. I was on holiday with my wife up in Byron Bay and I found myself just lying on a beach there for a few days. And in a conversation I had with my wife, it really, what, what the whole conversation boiled down to was, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, you have that moment where you go, what am I even trying to achieve? What am I, what am I getting at here? What's the point of this? And that actually was a spur then. Almost directly to say, hang on, this isn't working. I need to go and have some conversations with my GM and with my colleagues and my peers and figure out a better way. And all of a sudden, very quickly, I was having some good quality, clear conversations and I was getting clarity for myself. And then I knew what I needed to do. And actually, it wasn't too long after that that I quit the job and followed my passion to become an educator, which really leads me to, to, to what I do now. Wow. So um, I just want to backtrack slightly because um, there is so much. And again, I am sure there are people listening to your story who right now are feeling exactly as you did as part of that conversation during, you know, with your wife in Byron Bay. <laughs> and we skimmed across, as we do in life, we skim across uh, the action that we took and what we learned. If you could look back to that moment, Paul, and particularly knowing that there are very likely to be people listening right now, um, what what did you uh, what did you learn about yourself in terms of making that decision to change? And secondly, if you could give people um, you know, one, two, three point um, insights, ideas to actually do, what, what would they be? Sure. So on reflection, really what happened there was I was experiencing burnout. And mm. now, now what I know is that over 76% of people actually do experience it. And it's usually related to working more than 50 to 60 hours per week. And that's certainly what I was doing. I was doing well in excess of that. But what's really interesting there is that what's actually happening during those hours is even a bigger effect. And some of the things that I pulled out of a Gallup study I came across recently was that when we're experiencing a lack of fairness to ourselves or others in the workplace, when workloads are feeling like they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, when we're not getting clarity and communication from our, from our leaders or from our manager, and put that together with not feeling like you're getting enough support, and finally, if you're experiencing unrealistic timelines, put that all in a bucket. And these are things that will simply burn us out. Now, when I looked at that list, it was like, oh, my God, that was a checklist of what I was experiencing and what I was doing to my team. Now, there's a really clear learning for me there, which was, Paul, you've got to put your ego to the side and you've got to admit to this. You've got to be humbled by the fact that maybe the bias you have around your intention and what you're doing and how good you are at your job maybe ain't the truth. 
So my, my first real tool there is to then feed humility and get a clearer picture and get get a get a platform for having acceptance of where you are so that you can make a clearer decision on what you need to do. And it's actually one of those social competencies I talk about in the book, which I call the cornerstone. If we don't have the cornerstone of humility, uh, sort of front and centre of how we make our decisions, how we communicate and how we, how we really go about and operate, then we're going to find things really, really difficult. What does, can you explain a little bit more what humility means to you? What, what does humility look like? <laughs> Yeah, so to me, I think in the context of our work lives and what we're doing, but it could be personal as well, is fundamentally putting ourselves into a position of service. So I think that we got this really weird relationship with humility in our modern world and we sort of equate it to how we used to see things in the ancient world, which was fundamentally to be humble versus somebody else was to be subservient to them and to have a lowered status. And this would almost be shameful. And I I definitely feel like from all of my observations across with clients and also in my personal life is that actually I feel that we still have this relationship with humility. So we just reframe it. It's just a five degree tweak to be able to look at humility and being humble as, as quite a powerful thing. It's powerful to be able to serve. And the best example I can give of that is uh, Oprah Winfrey. Mm. How many people does she serve? Mm. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's millions millions and millions. And so, you know, if you look at a packed concert hall, which we don't have too much of these days, but um, if you have, you know, a rock star or if you have a band or whatever the case may be, and they sell out Wembley Stadium or the MCG or something like that, um, really, we all think that that rock star is the one that's on the pedestal. They're the ones that are the stars where in reality, they are there to serve that whole audience. And so in being able to reframe what a rock star looks like. It is to actually be at the bottom of the, the the triangle where you're supporting up rather than being at the top of the triangle where everyone is serving you. And so for me, that's what humility looks like. When I need to increase my humility, uh, I look at a, a few things actually. Uh, there's a few skills I talk about in the book, but the ultimate one is to really ask yourself who you serve and how can you serve them the best you can. And I think I ask myself that question on a daily basis these days. So even as a, a simple top tip, that would be the first one to go with. Um, so you've mentioned your book, which is awesome, by the way. Um, Paul's written a, an amazing book called The Rhythm Effect, The Leader's Guide to Team Performance. And, you know, what I what I love about your work, Paul, is it really talks to um, and is aligned actually to, to the work that I do around we've all got to work out how to unleash more brilliance in ourselves. Yeah. And there's a quote in here, you actually say, and I'm curious as to, I'd love to just, for you to just explain a little bit more on this. You say, and it's a, a simple one, but I believe that so many of us aren't necessarily going deeper on this. You say work doesn't have to be about survival. Mm, mm. I think, Ooh, sorry. Yeah, tell me more. Go, tell me more. <laughs> Um, I think that that's actually the game a lot of us are playing all the time. And 
in in you know, during 2020 that was brought to the service even further um I, i'm a big fan of simon Sinek's latest book where called the infinite game where he talks about the idea of the game that we're playing doesn't have an end point and the whole point of playing the game is to perpetuate the game to keep it going which fundamentally is what we're doing in business uh, there uh, i think london business school uh, had a did a study where in the 1920s the average lifespan of the business was 90 years in the 1950s that reduced down to 60 years and now it's about 17 years on average so the idea of being able to perpetuate our game is is really real uh and that's that's actually at the basis of what we're really trying to achieve is to be in business next year and if you think about that on a personal level we are it does feel like we're we're playing this game of survival so what does that look like on a day-to-day? And it is that we're actually going, right, well, we do need to survive, which means that I need to survive through my to-do list. I need to survive through the challenges that are put in front of me. I need to survive through trying to keep my team engaged and on board and wanting to work here, even though sometimes I don't feel like I want to work here. You know, these these sorts of things. And once again, I think that we just need to put the put the brakes on for a sec. And just look at the reality of just because we're looking to perpetuate the game doesn't mean our daily experience has to be about merely surviving through it. How can we get ourselves into a position where we're enjoying the challenges in front of us? We're prepared for those challenges, even though we don't even know what they're going to look like in the future. And we also have an ability to zoom out on the bigger purpose and the bigger mission of what we're doing, as well as zoom in on the nitty gritty that we're dealing with day to day. Do it with a smile on our face and actually feel like we're doing something of substance, not only for ourselves, but also then bringing in those people around us to be able to join the party and and enjoy that experience as well. So essentially the rhythm effect is is all about helping people not only enjoy what they are doing but to also perform better because um you know what are you seeing right now in terms of what is the what is the opposite of what you're seeing what does what do, how is it showing itself manifesting itself this this survival piece of work what are you seeing in the work that you do So I think the quick answer to that is that uh, what I observe in, particularly if I take my coaches, for example, the people I work with one-on-one, the discussions we have, and particularly at the top end of a program, the sorts of questions and things that they want to discuss. And what we're discussing is quite transactional things. How do I have this meeting? How do I have that conversation? How do I deal with that problem? And when we work through these things and look at how they've dealt with it before and how they're looking to deal with it, I can just see it on people's faces, the the the, the frown that begins, the, the, the tension that rises in the shoulders. And this is a really good example of being out of this flow state, out of this rhythm state where things are a bit more groovy, they're a bit more relaxed, and really at the pinnacle, we're feeling super calm about whatever's coming at us. So this is really interesting. We're dealing with these problems day to day. 
and anyone, particularly in a leadership role, has 10 times the amount coming at them every single day. So it's really understandable. And of course, with this constant barrage coming at us, we start to tense up. We get a little bit aggro. We get a bit angsty. And all of a sudden, as emotional beings, we start to then make poor decisions. We start to get a little bit short maybe in how we communicate or our communication starts to get a bit funky. The intention is still good, but how it manifests really starts to become, really becomes quite unproductive. So that's that's what I'm seeing a lot of. And I think it's as it goes back to biblical times. It's in our human makeup. And, and what I'm suggesting is that in that moment when we're feeling tense, when we're starting to, things are starting to feel on top of us and I can feel it and in, in, actually I can hear it in a lot of people I'm having conversations with, which is, oh, gee whiz, I just need to get through to the next public holiday. Well, yeah. this is not good. This is not a good place to be. Um, this doesn't mean that we're, I mean, really what that indicates to me is, you. number one, you don't believe that you can actually achieve everything you need to achieve in this coming day, week, whatever the case may be, in a relaxed and easy way, you are starting to get you're starting to get loaded down with the weight, that workload that's coming on you. And that starts to feed into a lowered motivation, which is not only for you, but it impacts the people around you as well. And this starts to become uh, quite it starts to transition through everybody around you as well. Mm. So I think at that point, rather than throwing more tension at the problem, there's an alternative way in which we can go. And that's where I started to build the practices of what is rhythm, getting into rhythm and finding that rhythm for yourself and the people around you. Fabulous. So you you said there you, you call this concept around or the IP that you've created, the teaching, the work that you do is around helping leaders develop a better rhythm effect for themselves and their teams. Can you you share a little bit more about what the rhythm effect entails or some, yeah. some tips or I'd some insights that the listeners can take away? And just tell me to shut up at any time because this is my jam. <laughs> I can go on for days about this stuff. But I think the best place to start is what, what is rhythm. And there's a few key points to it, which is uh, it's a sequence of uh, really high and strong and really weak things. So it's not necessarily about being strong all the time and going fast and quick all the time. It's about having the ups and the lows, but that consistency of it. Uh, it's also about synchronising with the things and the people around you, whether that's your environment or your products or your external stakeholders or, of course, your team or even synchronising with your own workflow as well. So these are some key points on what we're trying to achieve with our rhythm. And then we say to ourselves, okay, well, what's the first step? Well, the first step is to get into your own rhythm. And it's not necessarily about having a routine. It's not necessarily about just creating some cadence of practices, even though that's a part of it. What I found in my research as I started to delve into this, because I could see when people were in and out of rhythm, I could feel it in myself, but I wanted to know what are the actual tangible practical skills to be able to build it within yourself. And there's three main pillars. The first one, and, and the quote that stands out to me is the one from Michael Jordan when he talks about confidence. And the first thing he says is, I know that I've done the work 
I know that my skill set is really high and I can rely on it whenever I need it. And what he's really talking about there, we talk about hard work. So um, this is not about oh, just relaxing and letting it come to us and not working as much. What it is is more about putting our energy and our focus into the right places. So the first step is to make sure you're across your technical skills. What are the learnable skills, the processes, the tools that you need to be awesome at and go learn them? Number two, the second pillar is the analytical skills. This is fundamentally having analytical alignment between why we're doing stuff, what we're doing to achieve it, and then how we do it on a day-to-day basis. And that's a ridiculously short way of putting it together. But you you could call this uh, your, your overall strategy or these sorts of things. But I find that, once again, this is a beast of a, a tool that um, we really need to engage with. And as soon as we engage with all of this, it makes sense to us, we personally understand it, then decision-making and confidence in how we react and respond to any question and any problem that gets thrown at us starts to become a lot easier. And I think that this is something I've experienced myself and seen in my coaches over the last couple of years, is that once they nail this, the way they present, the tone in their voice just changes completely. They're a lot more relaxed because, once again, they've done the work in understanding why they're telling people or asking people to do a certain thing in a certain way, which is probably the hard way or the way that people don't want to do it because it's harder for them or it's different to what they've done before. It's outside their comfort zone. And then finally, the third pillar is the, the social competencies that really bring all this stuff to, stuff alive. And that's um, humility, which I talked about before, audacity and tenacity. And these are the three skill sets that really shone out in all of my research, that if we particularly want to be a, a solid performer, able to do things time and time again sustainably and be able to use our resource and our energy in a very effective and efficient way, and then if you take it to the rhythm effect, which is then having a really a ripple effect of our rhythm, i.e. getting other people into that rhythm, getting in sync, with our team and with the people that we serve, the community that we serve, then those three social elements are so crucial. Having a high level of humility, being able to serve, a high level of audacity, being able to break rules and break from convention, and a high level of tenacity, really being able to use our passion, our perseverance and our purpose to be able to push through when stuff gets tough. And where the real rhythm is, is in practicing those three pillars and working them and working them and working them uh, over and over and over every single day until you kind of look back after a couple of years of doing this and you go, damn, things are coming really easy to me. Mm -hmm. I love those those three pillars. Paul, I want you to go a little bit deeper for me because I want some examples, Um, whether it be... Uh, your own leadership and your own journey to unleashing your brilliance, how you've had to tap into those three pillars of humility, audacity and tenacity, or whether, you know, within reason, you've got a working example of a client that's done this, just so we can bring it to life uh, for our listeners would be awesome. 
Yes, absolutely. So <clears throat> firstly, to start off with, uh, I, I now use this own IP in how I build my own business and my way of working as well. So for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, I worked in a commercial business my whole life. And uh, as I said before, I spent a lot of time in sports. So I did a lot of coaching and those sorts of things and playing. But now in the way I work now, I do a lot of speaking, a lot of training, a lot of coaching. So I've had to invest in how to do that stuff. So there's, that's the technical tools right there. There's a big list of technical things. Even before getting on this podcast, I needed to do all of my vocal warm-ups. That's something I didn't have to do in previous things. But if I don't do that, I can't do my job. Uh, and as I'm literally here on this call, I've got up on my wall my uh, my analytical, what I call my five M's, where I go from mission to milestone to measures to moments. So that's all there as well. So, uh, and, and of course, the social things, uh, I've got a list of particular things I'm working on, which I have to practice every day for each pillar in that humility, audacity, tenacity. So that's how it looks for me. To give you an example of a client I've been working with, who's a financial, uh, he's, he's the manager of the financial uh, division of his business, and he is stepping up into a senior leadership role, uh, basically second to the GM. And so we have been working together over the last nine to 12 months in helping him with those tools. And a really good example is when we looked at the technical skills that we were working on right at the beginning, which was how do I have this conversation with my team? How do I, uh, how do I get my team to do this stuff? Uh, so it was very transactional. Now the conversations that we're having are more to do with how do I affect change at a board level? How do I um, put together this presentation so that uh, I'm able to affect change in our policies and change people's minds? How does this affect rhythm? Well, what we're really talking about here is what are the things that I can do? Where can I put my energy to be able to make sure that we cut out six months, nine months, 12 months, two years of working in the wrong direction using resource we can't waste? And that's, I think, really at the base of it is energy consumption. So for, for, for this particular client, it's been very much about how can I have the presence? How can I have the right conversations at the right time? So we talked, they were the sort of technical things we worked on. We have literally been working on his, what we call the five M's in the analytical alignment area uh, for all of that time. And we're still perfecting it. So really understanding right at the top, what is the mission of this client? sorry, of this company. And uh, we started off looking at, uh, uh, they basically do waste management in the construction industry. And the first thing was, well, we take away waste. And it's like, well, okay, um, so does all your competitors. <laughs> and does this get you up in the morning? Does this really do much for your team? Does this make a difference to why people want to work here rather than other places? And to cut a long story short, this has gone through 10, 15, 20 iterations before we got to a place where we really talked about the uh, really being the leader in eco-waste management for the construction industry. And it's so much more elegant than what I've just said, but it goes down that line. And then once again, getting that all the way down to the bottom of the analytical area where I talk about the moments and i.e. how does this look 
in the behaviors that we want our people to be doing every single day, that brings that alive, gets us to be able to achieve that. So once again, we have worked through that and that updates every three months or so, depending on what the initiatives are and what's happening in the business at that time. Lastly, for this particular client, socially, that is where the biggest improvement has been. So when I first started working with this guy, he saw himself as a people pleaser. He was wrapped up in this identity of micromanager. He really didn't feel like he had much power. And therefore, he was doing a lot of mask wearing. He was uh, (laughs) over, over communicating on some things and under communicating on others and really confused. And this is where he really has found a clear identity with who he serves, he's been able to break the assumptions that he used to have. So the conventions used to be, I need to be polite and I need to be friendly and get along with my peers and with my team uh, to be able to get good results and be able to do what I need to do. And one of the key rules that we broke there was a difference between being polite and direct and effective versus always feeling like I need to be nice and be everyone's friend. So just in that one thing, which took about six months for the old practices and the old ways of working to really stop and become a second nature thing on a day-to-day basis, this just created a huge weight off this guy's shoulders. And once again, just the way that he visually presents now when I go into meetings with him, he's just got so much more energy and he's a lot more relaxed and we go deep a lot quicker on what are the issues that we want to deal with because he's so much more clearer in what he needs to do. Janine, I hope that gives you a nice picture of the, the of how the whole system comes together. Yeah, it does. And there's such a wonderful alignment uh, in terms of how this is such a critical piece for individuals to learn about the rhythm effect to allow them or to get them into that place where they have the space to unleash their brilliance and, you know, become more. Um, and I guess sort of to wrap up this conversation, what, what in your, from your perspective, does unleashing brilliance mean? I think that I am really obsessed and and really passionate at the moment about the idea of being able to uplift others to be great and do good stuff. Uh, I think that's what Unleashing Brilliance says to me is when I am unleashing my brilliance, I know I'm doing that well when everyone around me is doing better, when everyone around me is singing, when they're really on top of their game and I'm playing my little part in that. If that's uh, if that's something that's happening more regularly than not, I reckon I'm on the right right path. So that's where my mind goes directly there. And and once again, that is, really speaks to this idea of being in sync with your environment, being in sync with the people around you. And the more that we do that, the more we can have this really powerful way of expressing ourselves, which is also simultaneously really relaxed. Paul, there is so many awesome elements in this conversation today. You know, as you just wrapped up there, at the importance of being in sync that, and you put this on the front cover of your book, it's not about how hard you work, it's how well you synchronize 
um, that conversation we had around work doesn't actually have to be about survival, but actually it's about feeding and fueling and working on those three pillars that you talk to of humility, audacity, and tenacity uh, to ultimately create the foundation for you to achieve more, to unleash your brilliance, to create the impact as individuals, as leaders, as parents, as as leaders of communities that, that you want to make. Um, Paul, how do people find you? What's the best way that they can get in contact with you? Uh, I am very active on LinkedIn, so please come and introduce yourself to me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also access the book very quickly and, e- and easily and get all the information you need uh, through therhythmeffect.com. And I have all of my details on uh, my website, paulfarina.com.au. Uh, all the info's there. Give us a call. Drop me a line. And uh, as you can probably tell, I really love talking about this stuff, so... it's never an imposition, get in touch. And uh, I would love, I I mean, that's my, that's where it really starts and ends with me, being able to get more synchronisation into our community, getting people, good, hardworking people to find their groove and to be able to get better results without really having to sacrifice health or relationships or straining in any way, uh, that uh, that really gets me going. And that that really is what gets me up every single day to work harder, to research more, to get further insights, to then build on uh, what I've already built so far. Your passion rings loud and clear, Paul. And I think for so many of us that are still navigating an incredibly uncertain and complex world that is constantly changing, where we're all resetting and reimagining what next looks like and equally maybe questioning and challenging ourselves about what we want to do differently, your work is so important. So um, thank you for the work that you do for writing this incredible book, The Rhythm Effect, which I strongly recommend people get their hands on. And thank you for gifting your time today and for sharing uh, so openly uh, so many ideas, tips and insights to help our listeners. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Janine. You're an absolute powerhouse. I love all of the work that you're putting out there and a a huge fan. So thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. To follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.